Bo, we got a really good show today. What we're going to be talking about is we're givers. So we decided we'd give back a little bit. Our listeners, uh, we asked a question on Facebook. We said, tell us topics you want us to cover. Instead of making you wait for those topics, we're actually going to go ahead and knock them out of the park right today and, and answer those questions. The second thing we're going to do today, if you ever want to know about risk, oh my goodness, guys, we are going to tell you anything and everything you want to know about risk to the point that you're going to say, Brian, quit talking about risk today. So all that and more in today's Money Guy Show. It's Brian Preston, the Money Guy, restoring order to your financial chaos, retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the Money Guy. But let's make sure we get the important stuff out there. This okay. is the Money Guy show. Go to moneyguy.com. Remember, by day, we're fee-only financial advisors with offices all throughout the Southeast. You can also go to the website, moneyguy.com, if you want to connect with us on any of our social media platforms. we got some new stuff that um, is kind of being cooked up as we speak, and um, people will be able to see what I'm talking about shortly. Um, if you want to write the show, you can write me directly. That's brian at moneyguy.com. Bo, your email address, bo at moneyguy.com. Anything else I'm leaving out? Nope, that, that's us. Let's, oh, uh... oh w- one quick thing, one quick thing. Um, I found out, you know, we've talked about that we're in 30, 30 states. I think we're in 31, 32. As of, uh, I found as out of our week. listeners actually are kind of digging on the fact of which states we're in, which states we're not. I'm trying to figure out how we get that out to you guys so that hopefully it encourages, hey, maybe we're in one of those blank spaces that we don't have a pin. So we'll, we'll figure out how we can get it out on the Money Guy website for you to see which states we actually have clients in. If you want to take the relationship to the next level, go check it out. So uh, make sure you're keeping up either on Twitter, um, Facebook, or even on the moneyguy.com, and we'll, we'll probably put that information out there. So look, the first thing, like I said, we're givers. We're giving back. Um, we put out there on Facebook, this, this was the request. I'm going to read it. We view the podcast as an evolving conversation to take personal finance beyond common sense. I feel like I should have stepped into superhero voice with the beyond common sense. but And we want you to be part of. And there, there Are there any questions or topics you'd like us to answer or cover in future episodes? And you guys... Hey, you're like, sure, you, you ask for, you know. Basically, right. this is, hey, this thing is for you. Let us know how we can add more value to your life. So l- let me jump on these. And I don't think anybody gave any information that they would mind me sharing. So the first one's... Well, they put it on the internet, so uh, surely not. <laughs> That's a good point. Ken, he's the first one. He says, are you ever in favor of carrying consumer debt? Huh. What items should never be charged? How many credit cards should be in your possession? And what about store credit cards? And do you ever advise clients to carry debt? THX. Or thanks if you're cool and hip and know that THX is thanks. That's a really good question. And actually one that we get a ton because a lot of the, there are some uh, points of view out there that debt is this evil, bad, negative thing that you should avoid at all costs. And then there's the other side of the equation that if you can charge it, they say load it up. Um, you know, we kind of fall a little sort of in the middle ground there. Yeah, I think I think debt is more like a, you know, utility knife. Okay. Um, very dangerous. Obviously, whenever I pull out my utility knife and pop it open and, and slide the blade out to open up a box, I'm scared to death I'm going to cut my hand off, you know, while I'm doing it. It's just one of those things I'm kind of not the handiest guy. But it's still, it, it's so hard to get in those Amazon packages if I didn't have my utility knife to make use of. And it's kind of the same way with debt. I'm scared to death of debt. But I recognize on a day-to-day basis, it actually makes my life a little bit easier. Yep. I mean, you know, I do use credit cards. 
Um, cause I think they, they provide, you know, purchase protection. You think about the travel insurance they provide. How about some um, cash back price matching, rewards? the, the rewards. I'm trying to do something right now where, um, I believe it's richmondsavers.com. If you go check out their blog, it's a, a husband, wife, CPA team. They're trying to tell you how to go to Disney World for free. I'm trying to use some of their strategies. So there's some really cool stuff that you can do if you realize and respect. That's the key part. That just like you use that utility knife with respect and you're scared of it, use consumer debt kind of the same way. I don't, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't use use debt. And I think what's interesting is the way that Ken phrased this question. He said, do you ever recommend clients carry consumer debt? And to me, that means, do you ever recommend where there's a strategy where you should just put money on credit cards and not pay it off? We we actually don't. We love no. paying off credit cards in full every pay cycle. Yeah. Get those rewards, get those benefits, but there's no point in you just throwing money away in interest uh, for no reason. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the the order of operations that we did a, sh- a few shows back, I mean, one of the first things I told you after you just get your deductibles covered is knock out the credit card debt. Because if you want to know some of the, the more damaging interest rates you're going to be paying, it's, it's going to be punitive if you keep credit card debt. So so try to be very aware of not keeping a balance on a credit card. Let's let's keep going. Um, How many credit cards should you have in your possession? I mean, I'm probably up to... Probably up to four or five. Yeah, I think that's about where I am. I, I think it depends on the person. You have to know your own spending spending strategy, and you have to know how strong your will is and how organized you are. If you're someone out there who has 12 credit cards and at any point in time you don't know where they are, <laughs> you're probably good. not keeping the tightest lid on your financial house. But some credit cards are good for gas. Some are good for groceries. Some are good for travel. Some are good for points. Some are good for cash back. So you kind of have to do it custom to your situation. Um, here's a good one. I have kind of a funny anecdotal story. What about store credit cards? Oh, okay. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and share. My wife doesn't listen to the show, so it doesn't <laughs> matter. Um, she gets enough of me where she, she can't believe people actually listen to the podcast. But um, store credit cards, I think that they can be powerful if used appropriately. Uh, meaning that if you're buying a whole room full of furniture I mean, we're talking about several thousand dollars, and if you can save 10, 15% by opening a store credit card, it might make sense. I mean, it definitely pulls on the old back pocket desire to save a few bucks and stretch that, the dollars as much as possible. But here's what I would caution you about store credit cards. Now, we do, like, I love my Target credit card. Oh, yeah. I told absolutely. you, Bo, Target has one of the better store credit cards out there because you get 5% off about everything. Free shipping uh, every free time shipping. you buy online. I think Lowe's has something. So if you're in the home improvement world, you know, when you're buying appliances or doing a, a, a big project at your house, I mean, they have a 5% off at theirs too. So those are, those are good, I consider healthy store credit cards. Um, the ones that I have a personal story that kind of drives me crazy um, fortunately, I've reconciled and I'm just going to consider it a sunk cost because I've done a show on when you have things that are sunk costs, you shouldn't worry and let them stress you out anymore. But my wife, I think, I can't remember if it was Gap, Banana Republic. Heck, they're probably all owned by the same people anyway. She, she opened a store credit card. I'm sure she got a mighty fine discount on whatever she was buying that day. The problem was, if you're going to do store credit cards, my advice to you would be, make sure the left hand knows what the right hand's doing. Uh, but because my wife probably saved 10 to 15% that day that she opened that store credit right. card. But because the right hand wasn't telling the left hand what was going on, the late fees and the interest that was carried for two months before I recognized, hey, what's this random Banana Republic bill that just showed up? 
we lost all store benefit. <laughs> and that's what I tell you. I think that that's a very, I think that probably happens. I bet they count on that. Sure. I mean, they, they count on that somebody's opening up this store credit card and they're going to forget about it and they're going to make it back on the fee side of things through late fees, um, interest rates if you can't pay it off. I mean, because if you think your, your interest rate's high on your, your, your travel Amex, go, go see what it is on those store credit cards. I, I guarantee you'll be more punitive even than the, that Amex is. You know, another, another question that we talked about a little bit in show prep, Brian, was, um, okay, so you have the store credit cards. What about, uh, if you're going to buy some new furniture, new refrigerator, there's this one body of thought that, uh, if you don't have money to pay for it, write a check and pay cash, you shouldn't buy it. And I think by and large, we would kind of agree with that right. with the exception of, Maybe a house or a car, sort of depending on, on your situation. But what about if you're going to buy furniture, buy a new appliance, and they're offering you, hey, you can finance this thing at 0% for 12 months. Is that something you take advantage of? I mean, I, I'll confess, when me, my wife and I first got married, we bought our dining room set because, you know, the the hutch was super. I don't even do, do younger people even buy formal dining room sets anymore. Uh, I don't even know what a hutch is, Brian. <laughs> It was a movie well, with Kevin James well, and uh, I mean, and Will we Smith. designed in our new house. We designed an entire room so we wouldn't have to sell this overpriced piece of furniture that has our china in it, and then um, this big round dining room table. I think it's six feet. Is it six feet round? You've that's, been to my house. That's yeah, big, but it, it's it's big. But anyway, when we first got that, when we got married, uh, we did finance. I think I did three years, same as cash. And if you guys are not careful, though, recognize a lot of those those deals are set up to where. Guess what? It is free if you pay it off by the time. But if you don't, if you'll notice on your monthly statements, there's interest accruing in the background. And what they're kind of hoping is, is that you forget three years in the future, two years, four years, whatever the term is that they offer you. They're kind of hoping, uh-oh, he forgot. Oh, my goodness, here comes the tidal wave of interest that kind of built up in the background. So if you do use those things, make sure you're ultra ultra conservative with your assumptions on it. But I, I think I would be a hypocrite if I told you, no, don't do that type of stuff. Um, when I did it myself, I mean, because when you're first starting out, you get married, you get a new house. I had empty rooms for years. We kind of attacked each room one at yep. a time. But it's it's nice when you can put together a plan, well, and that's the key part of it. That, I think that's, Ken, the whole answer to your question is, I think, just like most uh, consumption decisions you make, you need to have a plan. Watch being emotional. Watch making decisions on the fly. Take it, think about it, and uh, and that'll let you arrive at the right conclusion. Last question, because we have to move on to get these other three or four questions. Um, carrying debt, um, you know, we, that's a big thing. Matter of fact, I'm writing a column right now. They'll be out any day now in the next week or two on debt in retirement. I wanted to address that because I think there's so many different pieces of advice you're getting out there if you're researching. Do you carry debt in retirement? That I wanted to kind of give some guidance on, and, and my thoughts on that. Here's my thought on just carrying debt in general. And you have one. I want to let you attack the student loan side yeah, of thing. Sure. But on mortgages, um, I think that there are some debts that you're, you're probably just going to, it's part of life um, of buying a house and, and, and so forth. I have no problem with people having debt like mortgage debt and stuff like that in their 30s, 40s, 50s. But you're, you're hoping that, and this is why I, I feel in clear conscience I can say, be debt-free in retirement. By the time you're in your 60s, typically you have paid down your mortgage enough to where the mortgage interest is so small compared to, if you compare it to the standard deduction you're getting on your tax return, a lot of people think that they're doing their mortgage still to get this great tax deduction, but when your standard deduction is better or right 
right below where your itemized deductions are, are you really getting any benefit by keeping that debt? Right. And, you know, remember there is this huge psychological benefit to being completely debt free when you do leave the workforce. So that, that's, I guess, answering their question. I think when it, debt, especially debt like mortgage debt and other things like that that you're carrying on the long-term basis, not short-term things like credit cards, um, that's a young man's game. You and, know, so you want to pay it off earlier. And my my thought on debt is if you're, there's nothing wrong with having debt so long as it covers an asset that you're going to derive value out of. So a mortgage is something that is easy to, to quantify. I'd even say an auto loan for young people. Uh, if you're in a position where you could either – uh, pay off an auto loan that maybe has uh, 0.9 or 1.9 or even 2.9% financing or fund a Roth IRA, I don't know that I would necessarily tell you to pay off the auto loan if you're someone who drives a car for maybe seven or eight years and you have a three-year note on it. And you're in a rising income situation. Yeah, I don't think that that sounds crazy. I think um, I think if you're someone, if you replace your cars every two or three years, which probably shouldn't do anyways, if we're going to be honest. <laughs> you're not listening to the podcast, probably. Uh, you know, you probably don't want to finance those. But if you're someone who drives a car for seven years, yeah, there's, there's probably nothing wrong with financing it if you get a favorable interest rate because you have great credit. Um, and then the other really popular one right now uh, is student loans. And I have sort of a unique perspective on student loans. And I know that this isn't always, uh, for most people, uh, something they're able to do. But I would encourage you, if you have a student loans, I probably would not recommend paying on those student loans for longer than the value you were receiving from that degree. And that, that hits home for me. Uh, my <laughs> wife uh, is officially entering into retirement this May. She's not retiring. I she's think getting you have a, to be careful how you word that. She's getting a promotion to stay-at-home mom. She's about to take the hardest job you can do. And uh, and so we went ahead and decided, okay, well, she, you know, she has some student loans that, that she sort of brought into the to the marriage with us a number of years back. And, uh, and we decided to go ahead and knock those bad boys out because it seemed crazy to keep paying for a degree that was now uh, not going to be used in her current career field. But she could always go back. But that was just our sort of take on, does it make sense to continue to carry that debt? Yeah, that's probably a great way of looking at it. This next one is kind of a, this is from James. I wish we, you know, I wish Facebook told us where they were. I mean, we probably could have dug down deeper and figured right. out. Because I always like putting the geography of where our listeners are. But James wrote, how do, how do, Leverage debt to one's advantage. We kind of covered that a little yeah. bit in the last yep. question, but here's the second part of his question I think we can look at real quick. Crowdsource lending. Hey, is that a good investment? Hmm. So uh, here's the thing. We did a podcast three years ago, four years ago on Lending Club. Guys, and Bo knows, I was kind of excited. Oh, I was yeah. really excited about Lending Club to the point that we did um, we did two or three shows on an annual updates, and... um. I still like Lending Cub, Lending Club. I don't know what Lending Cub is. That's that's the that's small the, bears. the small bear cub of um of Lending Club. But Lending Club is good in theory. The problem is, and I, I recognize underwriting loans is much harder than we probably realize. Um, because I have tried to automate the process. I have some screens. I've also used some of the third party screening um custodians that will do it and yet after doing it four years now i think i've done it four complete years my interest rate my rate of return it says that i'm earning four or five percent but if i actually calculate after defaults and everything else i think i'm getting right around two percent two and a half percent or something like that because there's a lot of defaults that Mm -hmm. come through a lot i think people come to i've got a few loans that I ran through all my beautiful screens and i don't understand how people who have credit scores over 700 you know, 720 or whatever, just can be so 
nonchalant yeah. with just not paying walking debt away. back and walking away. And, and, and it, but it happens all the time on Lending Club. So I, I tell people, I think that there's nothing wrong. You know, I think about the whole basic financial planning pyramid that you learn when you're in college or, or studying financial planning where you have at the bottom, you have your, 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 your risk management and estate planning, and then you move into your retirement planning and estate. And then as you go up the pyramid, the very tippity top is speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing wrong with having Lending Club or, or some of the other crowd um, funding loans that you can go underwrite at, at that part because it's kind of a hobby. It's a fun yep. thing, and I still do enjoy that. I go into my Lending Club and play around with it. I think it's fun for that, but if you, I've had people who thought about, should I put my cash reserves over there because it could be a great way to earn some additional I'm like, no, no, that is a misplacement of understanding. Just because you're doing debt, which on, you know, most people's diversified portfolio, debt and fixed income is one of the more conservative things. Just because you're underwriting loans does not make it, make it a very conservative enterprise yep. like a, buying a bond would be. Yep. Um, do you have any thoughts? I mean, with your experience, no, because I, think, I got you into it I too. I think you said it perfectly. Uh, is it a good investment? I don't know if I classify it as an investment. Uh, it can be a profitable hobby if you have the right personality that you want to stay on top of it and put in the time. When we first started doing it, I checked my lending club account every day, and I was, I was really watching the credit scores. But after you get four hundred loans, it's hard to do that. It's hard to, and, and they uh, have gotten better. The site's gotten better on doing sorts and things like that. Where if you want to treat it as a hobby, and so I would liken it to, you know, I have a lot of friends who who are profitable buying and selling stuff on eBay. They find something mispriced and they go buy it and they sell it. I don't know if I'd ever call that an investment they're making, but it's a hobby that proves to be profitable for them. I think peer-to-peer lending can be something very similar to that. Yeah, and that's probably a good way of putting it. And, and by the way, I still still think Lending Club, good company, good fun thing, but I, I just I don't know if it, I would consider it a straight-up conservative investment. Um, Matt wrote us. He said, how many mutual funds should I have in my 401k or my Roth? Does the amount matter? Can you give a thorough explanation of expense ratios? What's too high to pay, and how much different expense ratios will cost me over the years? Thanks, guys. Love the show. So, um, Bo. Yeah, man. How many mutual funds are, are should you have in your 401k or Roth? Man, that is a, that's a tough question. And I think my opinion, uh, and this is the opinion shared here by the firm, it's is different, isn't it? it depends. It yeah. depends on where you are. You know, we've said a lot that if you are someone out there who is just kind of starting out in the wealth building accumulation phase, uh, and you're just now starting to save in your 401k, and you're starting to build Roth IRAs, and you're starting to build up your assets, and you're below that critical threshold of maybe in assets, it's very possible that you might just need one holding, a good target retirement fund for maybe Vanguard or somebody like that. Um, And so maybe that makes sense. For other people, maybe it makes sense to have um, a a few more if you want additional diversification like real estate or international. The thing that I would encourage you to think about, and we see this all the time, Brian, is how many times do we get a portfolio where someone tells us how well diversified they are because they have these 10 <laughs> funds yeah. and one is large cap value and large cap growth and growth opportunity and large cap blend. And then you recognize that all 10 of these funds are buying the same underlying yeah. companies. You haven't really done yourself any benefit there. Uh, I think that's a great point. I, I, I want, I thought what answers how diverse this, the, the answer really is to this question. If you go to the target retirement funds, let's just look at the different providers. We did a little research. Vanguard has 
four funds in their, like their 20 target retirement 2035 okay. fund. So when you buy the one Vanguard target retirement 2035, you're actually, even though you're buying one investment, it will have four separate funds built into it and it just does it automatically for you. If you go to Fidelity Freedom, the, their 2035 fund is, um, the Fidelity fund has 26 holdings. If you go to Schwab's target fund, it has 21 holdings. So even there's some variance even between the, the different custodians. Um, fast forward to kind of some of other Matt's other questions. Um, can you give a thorough explanation of expense ratios? What's too high and what's too much to pay? Uh, oh, this is a good one because yeah. it really depends on what type of product and what their purpose is. We got, you know, we have talked about I mean, if you've been listening to the show any amount of time, I talk about efficiency of markets all the time. Um, one of the, we, we are blessed here in the United States. I think we have one of the more efficient markets. And what I mean when I say efficient market, realize guys with how fast information changes hands these days, it is hard to have any more knowledge than anybody else about some of the bigger companies out there. Um, if you think about the, the, the example I always gave is, Bo, here we are recording this podcast. I bet within a 10-mile radius, there's at least 100 to 150 Easy. people who would gladly take you know, some of your hard-earned paycheck to help you invest that money. I mean, there we are a dime a dozen people who manage money. So if there's a dime a dozen, thousands, hundreds of thousands people like us, maybe, I mean, I don't think it's a million. There's a lot, though. There's a lot of us, people who help you manage money. There's only 500 to a thousand if you get into the mid cap size. But here in the United States, there's only really 500 really big companies. If you get down to mid cap where you'd recognize still a lot of the names, it's, a, it's a, probably right around a thousand. So if you have a thousand stocks and yet you have hundreds of thousands of people tracking it, how, how can do, anyone know more than somebody exactly. else? Exactly. It's an efficient marketplace. So you, it, it, you buy those type of markets. And guess what? Because of how competitive that market is with buying index funds and ETFs and things, internal expense ratios, which is the cost for printing that prospectus, for hiring the attorneys, for paying the managers, for just making keeping the doors open, has nothing to do with the investment advisor that's helping recommend or if you're picking it out. Even if you're doing no-load picking funds out yourself as a do-it-yourselfer, you're paying an internal expense ratio. An index fund, I mean, Fidelity and Vanguard have been battling it out for the last decade, really. They're 0 0.07, so, yeah, yeah, 0 .05, somewhere. Like, I mean, it, it's dirt cheap. I mean, we're talking about nickels mm -hmm. here for, for managing your money. So that's good. Go try to drive the cost down as much as possible on your index funds. But there's other areas where they're inefficient. Mm -hmm. I, I look at international um, I, you have to kind of look at bonds. I, bonds used to be a market that I loved to buy the index fund, but as we've had, you know, quantitative easing and we've had the government kind of involve itself in the process, you've had to kind of change the way you buy bonds where it's not as efficient of a marketplace because now if you buy, you know, a, a bond index, you're primarily going to end up with a portfolio of treasuries. Yep. So you, you, that might not be ideal for what you're trying to do. So you'll want to buy a bond fund manager and you're probably going to pay what, 0 0.4, 0 0.5? 0 0.4 to 0 0.7. You know, like somewhere that. in that range. And then if you go into international or small cap, where these are companies that are not as efficient, there, there's thousands of these companies. There's, it, how do you know which one to buy? And you want to make sure you're outperform the index in the long term and that asset class alone. 
um, you're probably going to have to hire a manager because it's hard to buy the indexes because those are very inefficient. Um, the person could have knowledge that probably would help them have a better rate of return. And as a result, it's going to have a higher internal expense ratio, probably closer to 1% or a little above. I think with most things that you spend money on, if you're going to pay a premium, if you're going to pay a little bit more, you just need to know what you're paying for. Um, There are a number of fun companies out there um, that uh, do research on advanced qualitative type research. and They're coming up with these new strategies and new ideas for how to manage assets based on value or momentum or efficiency. Right, right. And uh, and they're a little bit more expensive. And so maybe if there's some merit to that strategy, you might want to pay more. Um, I wouldn't pay more for something that you could get for cheaper if there's no additional value added. Exactly. So next question. This is from Jamie. I'm literally just starting out and everything is a little overwhelming. How do I get myself organized and point in the right direction to set myself up for success? Uh, two weeks ago, we did a financial order of operations. Jamie, first thing you need to do is go listen to that show. I think, here's here's what I hate about the financial industry. We scare people to death. We make what I consider simple complex. We really do. And that's why there's a reason that from the day I started this show, I started talking about restoring order to your financial chaos. Is first, Jamie, take a deep breath. I mean, it, it is, especially when you're younger, the good news is when you first start out, Life is not that complicated. And I'm, I'm going to break it down. I, we've done podcasts called the 30-Minute Financial Plan. But here's the big thing. Do a risk assessment first. Make sure you have some money in the bank, cash reserves. Make sure you, if you have children, you have wills and those type of things. And then make sure you have some term life insurance to cover to replace your income. That's that's really the hard stuff. You know, if you, if you can get the cash reserves and the insurance, the risk stuff, just in case you got hurt, you got sick, you want to make sure that type of stuff's covered. Investing's actually gotten easier. Yeah. I mean, now, guys, if you have less than $250,000, go buy a, Van- uh, you know, a target retirement fund from Vanguard, Charles Schwab, Fidelity. I mean, TD Ameritrade, there's all kind of custodians that will provide you very low cost target funds where you just choose the year that you think you're going to retire and they'll start off aggressive. And as you get older, they will slowly glide down to a more conservative portfolio. There's nothing wrong with taking advantage of that. Those things didn't exist. 15 to 20 years ago, now you have a new tool set that's even cheaper because things are getting cheaper and more cost effective. That's a great thing. And, and I think besides that, Jamie, you're in a great place. I mean, and after you get to a point where you have 250 or more and your income starting to go up where you're in the six figures, you got kids you're trying to think about saving for college, that's when you, you your life does start to get more complicated. And that's when hopefully you can graduate or take your relationship to the next level and, and look into that. But Jamie, great question, and hopefully um, it sets you up for success. If you just listen to the podcast is a That's big a thing. There's, there's a lot of blogs, a lot of podcasts. People want to share information. There's something something tremendously fulfilling about watching people catch a concept and understand it. Um, last question, then we're going to talk about risk a little bit. Uh, Donald wrote, I guess it's Donald and Karen, because it's um it's got a husband and wife picture, and then it's got Donald, Karen, and then the last name. Um, you're doing a wonderful job. Thank you. Love that. With an exclamation point. I probably should point out when there's an exclamation point because I could have emphasized it a little bit more. How does, how, or I'm going to, because that, that's, that's singular, I'm going to read it plural. How do ETFs work and how do you make money with them? Uh, okay. That's a, yeah. So what is an ETF? ETF just stands for exchange traded fund. And this is the way that I would think about it. You can go out there and you can buy Apple or Google, well, Alphabet. Or Home Depot or Lowe's or 
fill in the blank of stock, right? Right. Uh, well, if you want to go have a diversified portfolio, you got to go buy all those different companies. But mm-hmm. how do you know how much to buy? How do you avoid trading costs? So um, a number of years ago, these companies were developed called mutual fund companies. They said, well, instead of you having to go buy all these individual companies, we'll do that for you. We'll go buy these companies and we'll decide what to buy and what to sell. And any taxes that we trigger, we'll just kind of package them up and we'll send them out to you at the end of the year. You can pay taxes on the transactions. Right. Well, as we've moved forward in the financial industry, we get better products available or different products available. Now we have exchange-traded funds, uh, which work very similar to mutual funds, but it's a little bit more of a transparent structure, meaning that you go out there and you buy this exchange-traded fund, and underlying, you still own all of those same companies. But rather than being in the structure where you spread out the tax liability across all the holders, it's a more direct form of ownership where... Uh, it trades in real time, similar to a stock. It doesn't have to settle at what's called net asset value. But it essentially works kind of the same way in a slightly more tax-efficient manner. Based upon the way you put it, because I, 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 you, you, it sounded very beneficial to ETFs to the detriment of, of mutual funds. And I haven't completely thrown mutual oh, funds no, out no, yet. Oh, no, 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 not at because all. Because here, here are, let, me, let me give you just a, a few quick thoughts, too. Is I think Bo is right. It, ETFs are the evolution of the next step past mutual funds because they're kind of a hybrid. You know, you nailed it. It's a, a hybrid between mutual funds and stocks and the fact that you can trade intraday much more tax efficient. Um, I'll give you guys an example. I still like mutual funds in the fact that they still settle at the end of the day. Uh-huh. So there used to be horseplay, but the, the government kind of got involved and took out some of the horseplay that was occurring after the markets closed and so forth. So, Mutual funds typically trade open-ended mutual funds. Let me qualify that. Uh, open-ended mutual funds, they price them at the end of the day, exactly what Bo said, at net asset value. ETFs can trade intraday, just like a stock can. That's good, but it's bad. Create some inefficiencies. Because there have been some inefficiencies when we have these micro um, crashes yep. or these, these weird trading things that have happened. Guess who's been one of the main areas that have been bearing the brunt of that through their pricing because they haven't quite figured out the efficiency of making sure that trading is reflective of everything that's going on in the market. You see ETFs sometimes fall prey to that. Um, I I will tell you, I like mutual funds typically, like if you're buying January through June, you know, there's nothing wrong with buying mutual funds because they typically issued out their capital gains at the end of last year. If you're buying and if you have a lump sum to invest at the end of the year, I like ETFs, especially in a year that the market's been good because you don't want to buy a portfolio that has a bunch of embedded gains and then get a big tax bill off something you weren't even there to participate. But I think your, your example was, was perfect. I just want to make sure we're balanced. I still haven't thrown mutual funds out. No, it's they it's, have different tools. It's not an either or, all or nothing. These are all just like you said. They they are different tools in your tool belt to allow you to. And we kind of do a hybrid. Of, we do a mix of all. Oh yeah, our clients they hold ETFs, they hold mutual funds. Um, yeah, we we kind of build out diversified portfolios across all of those various options. As I'm trading, you know, kind of changing gears here a little bit. If you guys like this type of segment where we just plow through questions. You know, give us some feedback. Like I said, I'm Brian at MoneyGuy.com, Bo, B-O at MoneyGuy.com. i just like to know, we want this show to reflect what you guys want. So if this is good, if we hit you kind of Gatlin Gun style, where we go through a list of questions and answer them, we love it because this is this is fun to kind of flex that 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 fountain of knowledge or that, that, that muscle of finance that we're trying to work on here. It's kind of fun to go through that stuff. So let's talk about risk. Okay. 
so much can be said about risk, and we don't even think about it. I think if you ask, if I if I went up to nine to ten people on the street and said, "Hey, you invest. What do you know about risk and investing?" They're either going to say, "You know, I know I got to take risks to make money," or I got. They'll say, um, "The stock market that's risky." Yeah, they'll say that's risky, or they'll they'll say. Uh, my, my new advisor had something called a risk tolerance questionnaire that, you know, he made me fill out when we opened the account application. I think that's really all that most people who invest know about risk. Yeah. And risk is so much deeper than that. There's, there's so much more that goes into risk that I want to just kind of step out. Now, you know, covering the basics, we all know risk is one of those things. The further down the risk spectrum you step when you're investing, the more return you're expecting, you're kind of thinking, okay, I'll take, I'll take a little bit more risk, but I'm going to get a little better rate of return. Now, you know, because cash is going to be on the very safe side. Mm-hmm. You even got the old FDIC insurance. And then, you know, recently commodities is going to be on this side of right, risk yep. because it's just so volatile. Now, but, Volatility. What what is that in a client's portfolio? Yeah, volatility is just the the ups and downs that you experience. And so, uh, generally speaking, we think the further out we move on the risk spectrum, the greater rate of return that we're willing uh, that we're going to receive. But with that greater rate of return, we have to anticipate we're going to get some increased volatility, which means we're going to have some wild fluctuations, uh, and we have to be able to make sure we're comfortable with that and make sure that the asset that we're buying makes sense to hold given that volatility. And that volatility is what causes you not to sleep at night. That's exactly right. That's what, you know, it's just like there's there's so many charts and other things we try to show clients where we're we're saying, look, enter a year, you're going to see the portfolio do all kind of crazy things. But if you measure it from January to December, you know, 80% of the time, hopefully on a 10-year scale, you're going to see good things happen. But enter a year, there could be all kind of crazy things. One of my, my favorite financial advisors that I follow just sent out a, a kind of a, a, a week, you know, monthly newsletter. It's talking about the, the, the power of patience and mm-hmm. in investing. And I think that's such a, something we could, should be reminded of. But realize when you invest, guys, there is a complete disconnect between the type of investor you want to be and the type of investor you actually are. And, and the proof is in the numbers. Um, I was looking at, you know, because the first segment I wanted to cover was risk tolerance. Risk tolerance is the segment you've probably heard of when we're talking about risk because risk tolerance is on every account application that you do with, um, it doesn't matter if you're talking about a broker-dealer, a reg- registered investment advisor, they're all supposed to do some type of analysis uh, for, for compliance, meaning that the government's saying, hey, are you, um, are you asking your clients about risk and how they feel about risk? And so everybody's come up with these handy dandy little risk tolerance questionnaires of usually eight to 10 questions and you fill them out and then you go, okay, I guess I'm covered on risk. But there's a huge disconnect from what actually people do. If you pulled the S&P, I always like to go pull the Dalbar study. Dalbar is that, that research study talking about human behavior and, and investments. If you go to Dalbar and do a Google search, you'll see they always have really good research that comes out. A few years ago, uh, one of the reports I looked at had that the S&P 500 for the last 20 years has averaged a rate of return of 9.22%. Now, caution everybody. Don't use the S&P as your, as your only benchmark that you consider success in your portfolio because you're going to diversify. The S&P 500 is the 500 biggest companies in the United States. Remember, the S&P also lost 37% in 2008. Most of us don't want to do that when we're trying to work towards financial independence. But it's a great conversation piece, nonetheless, to use it as an indicator. So the S&P for the last 20 years was at 9.22%. 
What do you think the average investor did during that same period of time, according to Dalbar? I'm guessing it's much, much worse. It was 5%, right around 5%. So instead of buying low, selling high, that we are all taught in basic you know, that's what I don't know if we learned it in Wall Street or from the gecko or, or, or finance 101, but you're supposed to buy low, sell high. Just the opposite appears to occur. I mean, there's all kind of research reports we also read on when cash levels, where are they high, where are they low with the average consumer. Typically, they are very high when you have the peak market opportunities to buy, meaning the stock market's getting the teeth kicked in, and that's the best money you can put into the stock market is when it's getting its teeth kicked in, being a contrarian. You'll see cash levels soar through the roof. And then there's the exact opposite. When you reach, um, you know, everybody's at a fevered pitch. They're all punch drunk off of their great returns they've had for the last two or three years. That should be the scariest time. And you probably want to have a little extra powder money for the future. That's when you'll see cash levels go way, way low. And that's because the average consumer is buying high and then selling low. They're, they're selling from emotion. So, Risk tolerance is one of those things that's supposed to be, definition-wise, it's supposed to be the measure of whether an investor can emotionally handle fluctuations in value. The same volatility that you were just talking about, Bo. Let's talk about the solution. How do you handle risk tolerance? Um, I recommend people, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, heck, you could even do this here. 2008, did you internalize how you felt in 2008? What, what did it feel like? I mean, in, even 2015 was not a good year. The market right. was actually negative in 2015. First few months of 2016 were not good months. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had a, quite a bit of pullback. How did you feel during those times? If you lost sleep, if you were nervous, if you just, all you could think about is, I can't believe I lost that money. Even though you probably hadn't lost the money, it was just a fluctuation, a volatile time in the market. How did it make you feel? If it made you just really not up in the stomach. Your portfolio is too risky. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't you agree with that, Bo? I, think so, I mean, yeah. if it's if it's one of those things, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of, of of fear. But if you actually were nervous to where you're calling people and you're concerned and you're starting to wonder, are these seed bank and gold commercials right? I mean, that, that's what that's when I, I know that my clients have probably we need to make sure we revisit or talk about risk tolerance a little bit more. Or if you find yourself making this declaration, if the market falls another five percent, I'm just going to cash. Yeah. If it oh, hits this number, too. I'm just selling. Fortunately, that's probably the minority. Uh, I mean, that's sure. probably one to two percent. I mean, it, I will tell you, I think most of our clients, and I, I bet this is at most. I don't know if it's all places, but. They, they handle this stuff. I think we have these discussions on the front end where there's not a lot of disconnect on that. And here's the other side of your risk tolerance. If you're one of those financial mutants, we had a listener a few yeah. years ago, right? If you're a financial mutant, and um, what's funny is data points, which is um, Sarah, who you know, who's tied into the data from the millionaire next door and so forth. Sarah had just written a white paper recently from data points on how people who have a propensity to be super accumulators of wealth they typically do invest when markets are getting beat up. Yep. There is a, a very much a propensity to, to try to put money and be a contrarian. So if you're one of those people that's a financial mutant and the market gets beat up and you're going, do I have any extra money? Where, where, I, I want to get in this thing. You have a high risk tolerance, and, you, and that, that's a good thing to look at. So that's risk tolerance. We all know about that because you do the compliance questionnaire that's come up. There's another side of, compl- of, of risk that doesn't get talked about that I talk about all the time. Risk capacity. Oh, yeah. That, and that's, and Brian, I would say probably risk capacity may be an even more concept. This is the tolerance. one that will knock you on your butt 
as you enter retirement, if you don't know what you're doing with risk, is because risk capacity is the thing that if you're a 60-year-old that made your money by owning businesses and being an entrepreneur, and you're like, man, I have a risk tolerance, I can do anything. I'm a cowboy. Yeah, I'm a cowboy. I can do anything I want to. Yes, you have the risk tolerance. But at your age, if you're 70 years old, should you take that level of risk if you built up a nice nest egg? Is it right? Risk capacity would tell you you might want to watch your risk profile just because you might not have the time or the ability to reach your goals and to recover from those downturns. Um, it's completely independent and sometimes in direct contrast with risk tolerance. Um, a mathematical example, because I know we're running out of time and I want to make sure we, we, we keep things moving. If the market lost 40%, and I know people go, 40%? Who loses? I've, I've seen portfolios, guys, where an 80-year-old lost 40% in 2008. It wasn't our client, by the way. It was a relative of a client. And um, you can't, it does happen. Remember, the market lost 37%. Yep. The S&P 500 did in, in 2008. If you think about the average rate of return is somewhere around, you know, on a 60-40 type split of around 8% a year or something like that, it would take you a return of 67% to make that 40% back. You don't have to just make 40. you got to make close to 67% to get back to break even. Well, if you're making 8% a year, I mean, you can quickly see, I mean, we're talking about 8 or 9 years before you make your decade. money. That is close to a decade on somebody who's in their 80s. Is that a smart move? I mean, that is money that I don't know that you have the time. So that risk capacity was all out of whack on, on that type of analysis. So here's the risk capacity solution. You need to understand how diversification works with your financial goals. If you're a person, there's a reason those target retirement funds we're talking about, as you get older, they are dialing down their risk profiles on purpose is because you do not need to be taking a tremendous amount of risk and swinging for home runs when you've already conquered the game. Why are you trying to still swing for home runs when you've already won the game? It just is not good management. It's not good decision-making on building financial independence for the future. So if you find yourself listening to the show and you're someone who is in retirement, uh, risk tolerance is a huge conversation you should have. Hey, how much volatility can I experience before I make a bad decision emotionally? Uh, and then you also know your risk capacity. How much can my portfolio withstand to at least allow me to continue to satisfy what my ultimate financial plan yeah, you, is? You, you want that Goldilocks portfolio. Yep. Not too risky, not too conservative, just right to get me through financial independence. If you're someone who's nearing retirement, I'm going to say if you're within five to seven years of retirement, that's when probably you really need to have the risk capacity discussion because it switches. Yeah. Uh, when you go from pre-retirement to retirement, post-retirement, the capacity for risk that exists in your portfolio changes. Uh, and if that's not a discussion that you are having, it's probably one that you should be having. Well, guys, I think that's probably a great segue. Bo just said it. You want to take the relationship to the next level? Reach out to us. We're in 31, 32 states now. Always exciting that you guys have made this this incredible endeavor where I started just, I wanted to educate people and reach them on how cool it was to be good and with your money and becoming finan and building financial independence. And it's turned on, this thing has taken a life of its own, Bo. I mean, I feel like we are the luckiest guys in the world that we get to connect with our listeners every other week 
and really put out some great information. So so check us out, moneyguy.com. You can write the show directly. I'm Brian at moneyguy.com. I got my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen, Bo at moneyguy.com. We'd love to hear from you. And then also always, thank you for the great feedback we get on Stitcher, on iTunes. A lot of you guys are completely dialed into the system, and we thank you for that. I'm your host, Brian Preston. Talk to you in two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. <laughs>